This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 60, and then continuing on into chapter 7, verse 9. John 6, 60 through 7, 9. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate our hearts to receive it. That we would most of all know and make this confession that Peter did that you and you alone have the words of life. I pray that we would all believe these words, 
that we would be faithful to proclaim them in a world that desperately needs to hear them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our society today, there is this activity, this set of activities that has come to be known as cancel culture. If you are a public figure and if you say anything that is too much against prevailing public opinion because of the way information spreads now, which is often online and very quickly, and because there is a disproportionate number of people in the world who seem to have nothing else to do but be angry about the things other people say, you could lose your career. You could lose your livelihood. You could lose any influence that you might have had very quickly. People can have their personal details released. They can be harassed. You, next, th you might say something, and next thing you know, you've got protesters showing up at your house, causing a scene, setting things on fire. These are all the things that we see going on in our world that just shows how often irrational and ugly things have gotten to be in our day. Now, perhaps the greatest problem of these behaviors is that the people who are most often on the receiving end of these cancellations are people who are saying true things. If one opposes the new religious orthodoxies of our day, so things like support for transgenderism and homosexuality, embrace of critical race theory, embrace of evolutionary and scientific theories, those are often the grounds that draw this kind of backlash. Sadly, far too much of culture and media and technology are controlled by people who hate God's truth and will go to great lengths to oppose and silence it. And yet, as we face these difficult realities in our day, we can take some solace knowing that our Lord faced similar problems. We have seen in recent weeks, as we've been looking through the Gospel of John, developments in Jesus' ministry and his teachings regarding bread, regarding a supernatural feeding miracle that Jesus had done, and the aftermath of it. Jesus fed a multitude of 5,000 men and their families, and at that point achieved something of a peak in his popularity. The crowd that was there that day was ready to crown him as their king. But Jesus did not want the kingship that they offered. It was not the kingship he came to fulfill. It was too small. They just wanted to make him the king of a small piece of land in the Middle East. But Christ came to be the king over all the earth. Now, it got to the point where this multitude was following Jesus around. They pursued Jesus across the sea to Capernaum where in chapter 6 of John, Jesus delivered this teaching concerning the bread of life. In it, he asserted his divinity, his being God and his heavenly origin. Now, this was already a source of much controversy as the Jewish leaders had sought on that basis to put Jesus to death as a blasphemer. But then in addition to those claims, Jesus added, those teachings concerning the necessity of feeding on his flesh and blood, that he and he alone was the source of true spiritual life. So how did people respond to these teachings of Jesus in John chapter 6? Well, that brings us to our text tonight. 
For most people, the response was to reject them. We will see this rejection of Jesus and his word tonight in three points. First, we see that Jesus is rejected by his fans. This crowd that was so recently wanted Jesus to rule over them, they were so interested in him, they were following him around, they were hanging on every word he said, suddenly they're done with him. We see this in verses 60 through 66 of chapter 6. And then second, we see rejection that comes from among Jesus' friends. Of Jesus' closest disciples of the twelve, even one of them will reject and betray Jesus. And then third, we see the rejection of Jesus by his family in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. We see that Jesus' brothers cannot accept Jesus' work and his purposes. So again, we see Jesus' rejection tonight by his fans, by friends, and by family. And those are our three points tonight. First, we see the rejection by Jesus' fans in verses 60 through 66 of chapter 6. So in verse 60, we get the immediate reaction to what Jesus had previously taught concerning himself as the true spiritual bread. They say something, the crowd, they say something that is true. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It's not an easy teaching to understand. In fact, on human logic and reason, it cannot be understood at all. And this is the broader point that Jesus made throughout this teaching discourse. It can only be understood by God's work. It can only be understood by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit through faith. Any other approach to these teachings will lead to rejection or confusion. Now, Jesus knows, as he has offered this teaching, that many do not understand. And he knows most of all why they do not understand. And this is reflected in how he responds, starting in verse 61. He asks the crowd, does this offend you? Now, the Greek word for offend here is scandalizo. So like the English for scandalize. In the eyes of his audience, Jesus' words are scandalous. They were unacceptable. They could not be received in polite society. Of course, they were also true. He goes on to ask, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So Jesus is foretelling his departure from the world. He knows that what he has said is true. He knows that he is divine. He knows that he was sent by the Father. And he knows that to the Father he will one day soon return. After his death and his resurrection, he ascends bodily into heaven. Jesus also acknowledges that it is only by the power of the Spirit that these words that he has said can be received. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. So we see here the practical outworking of what Jesus has taught elsewhere here in chapter 6. God's sovereignty over salvation. The Father chooses. He elects a particular people. The Son accomplishes their redemption, and then it is the Holy Spirit that applies this salvation to those elect people by faith. 
This passage presents a very clear Trinitarian picture of our redemption. But to the unbelieving, those who do not have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it does not matter. Nothing else can bring them to understand and believe. And Jesus knows this. We are told that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who would betray him. It would be Judas, one of the twelve, who would betray him. More on that in a moment. But of this crowd in the synagogue at Capernaum, many, in fact, probably most, do not believe either. Though they have been interested in Jesus thus far, they have not done so out of true faith or belief. They were fans, hence how I titled this point. Jesus is the new and big and interesting and exciting thing in Galilee, and they're just along to see where this all goes. But once the rubber hits the road, once Jesus begins to teach the difficult and controversial things that get the wrong kind of attention from the authorities and such, these people aren't going to stick around. And Jesus' last word here is to remind them of something he has already said. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. By human standards, it would seem unlikely and even surprising that in terms of human attention and success and fame that Jesus has accumulated, that it could all fall apart so quickly. Jesus has gone from being their future king to being alone, abandoned, something of a pariah, just in the span of a chapter. But Jesus is not surprised. He has always known that this was coming. It was his will. It was God's will from the beginning. Jesus knows who of those people gathered were actually his. In verse 66, we get the response from the crowd. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, this is not talking about the 12 disciples. We talk about them separately here in a moment. But those others who had followed, those others who at least thus far had appeared to be disciples of Jesus, most of them now are gone. They leave. They've heard enough. They can't go where Jesus is leading. They did not have true faith. They were just fans. At the first sign of trouble or difficulty, they scattered. Now, I wish I could say that this sort of thing only happened back then. But many in our day treat Christ and they treat the Christian faith the same way. They are fans more than followers. They might say they're Christians. They might go to church. They might seem to be a part of us for a time, but when the price gets too high or when something more exciting comes around, they're on to the next thing. Maybe they face some sort of hardship or difficulty in this life and God doesn't help them in the way that they think he should. Maybe they or someone close to them embraces the ways and teachings and lifestyles of the world in such a way that we as Christians can't go along with it. And for many people, that is the jumping off point. Maybe being a Christian starts to become costly for career, for education, for things of that sort. But whatever the cause is, many prove to be fans, not followers, and they will depart the faith when trouble comes. Jesus' parable of the sower foretold similar things. 
There are seeds that get sown in rocky soil. They have no roots. They might sprout up for a bit, but when the trials of life come, when it becomes costly, they're gone. They're out of here. They're not Christians. They're not a part of the faith. But besides the fans, there will be other groups and other reactions to Jesus' teaching and Jesus' situation. And this brings us to our second point, Jesus' friends in verses 67 through 71. So after the fans clear out, Jesus addresses the 12 disciples. He asks them, do you also want to go away? Now, he already knows the answer, but he's out to make a point here. It is a valid question to ask at this point. Since this is the part where everybody's jumping off, since this is the part where everyone is leaving, let's make sure we get everybody. But for 11 of the 12, the answer is going to be no. They do not want to go away. They are going to stick around. In fact, starting in verse 68, it is Peter who makes one of the most profound confessions of faith in the whole Bible. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Peter recognizes what the fans don't and can't. Whatever problems they may have with Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teachings are true, and it is only in those words that eternal life can be found. I mentioned all the reasons why the fans might fall away, all the cultural and societal and relational pressures that one might face to turn their back on Christ and his word. But those who do abandon do so with a very short-sighted perspective. What good is having and maintaining and preserving the things of this world if its end is death? As Jesus asks elsewhere, what profit is it to a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or to put it a different way, what does it matter if you lose your job, your friends, your family, your influence, and so on for the sake of Christ, knowing that in Christ you have eternal life? You might face rough times on this earth. But at the most, we're all here but a few decades. But if we are in Christ, we get trillions and trillions of years of peace and rest in the presence of our Savior. Peter and the other disciples get this. They have this eternal perspective, with one exception that we'll talk about here in a moment. But Peter goes on in verse 69. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As I've said often throughout the Gospel of John, no Christ, no salvation. But the opposite is also true. To have Christ is to have salvation. Peter and the apostles, they know Christ. They believe in Christ's word, and so they have his salvation. Now, this does not mean that they will always be so steadfast. For instance, on the night where Jesus is betrayed and when he is crucified throughout the course of these events, most of the 12 end up fleeing. They fall away. They go into hiding out of fear. Peter himself will deny Jesus three times. 
Peter even later on in his life, after Jesus' ascension and the establishment of the church, he'll lapse for a time into the sins of the Judaizers, imposing Jewish legalism on Christian converts. This is described by Paul in the book of Galatians. But ultimately, 11 out of the 12 disciples there present will remain and persevere in the faith, even at great cost, even through great suffering, and for most of them, death. But there is the case of the other one. Jesus responds in verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now John fills in with this editorial comment here. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. This is the first time that we see foretold Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Judas was with the twelve, he was one that Jesus had particularly called and appointed to be there. Externally, it would appear that Judas was on the right track. He would be with Jesus. He would learn with Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. But as it turns out, like the fans who have already left, Judas's heart was far from Jesus. See, Judas loved money. Judas had somehow become the treasurer of the disciples. He kept the money bag for them. He was responsible for giving the money out to the poor and for supplies and for whatever else they needed to purchase. Of course, we also read elsewhere that Judas would steal from that money. He would embezzle. And Judas was always concerned about the money and where it was going. For instance, in Mark chapter 14, a woman came to Jesus and broke a very expensive bottle of perfume and anointed Jesus with it. This was right before Jesus' suffering and death. It was worth 300 denarii, which would be about a year's wages. It's a, quite a bit of money. The disciples wanted to know why Jesus let this happen instead of selling that perfume to help the poor. Now, in Judas's mind, the thief and the embezzler, he was probably disappointed that by using this perfume this way, he wasn't going to get a piece of that pie. That was money that wasn't going into the bag that he could then steal. And in fact, in both Matthew and Mark's gospel, it was immediately after this episode of Jesus being anointed with this expensive perfume that Judas goes to the high priest, deciding he wants one last payday at Jesus' expense and agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, that's not even that much money. One commentator estimates that 30 pieces of silver could be as low as about $20. But Judas wanted even that little bit of money more than he wanted Jesus. He condemns his own soul for such a low price. All this to say, there is no room for divided loyalties among Christ's followers. Either you believe in Jesus, and you believe in his words, and you will follow that truth wherever it leads you, or you won't. If you would rather have the things of this world, you may get them, but you won't have eternal life. You won't be raised up on the last day. You will be raised to eternal death and condemnation. 
The crowd that was there that day at the synagogue in Capernaum, they would have rather had earthly bread. So they left without the bread of life. Judas would rather have his money. And so he abandons the treasure of greatest price. But our highest loyalty, our first priority must be Christ because he and he alone has the words of life. But this rejection of the crowd and the pending rejection of Judas are not the end of it. And this brings us to our third and final point. After the rejection of fans and the rejection of a friend, we come to the rejection of family, which is in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 7. In verse 1, we see that in light of this new wave of controversy, Jesus remains in Galilee. Because of the hostility of the Jewish leaders, he does not want to immediately go back south to Judea, to Jerusalem, because that's where all those leaders were. And at this point, they wanted to put Jesus to death. Now, there was yet another one of the Jewish feast days in hand. This time, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. At this feast, the Jews would go in their families, and they would actually set up booths, set up temporary shelters where they would have the feast as a reminder of their time sojourning in the wilderness. But Jesus receives a challenge from his brothers. These would be the other children of Mary and Joseph that were born after Jesus. It might have even included James and Jude, authors of New Testament letters who were brothers of Jesus who were later became Christians and church leaders. But for now, the situation with Jesus' family is very different. They tell him that he should go to the feast and display his power. They say, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But we find out that these brothers are actually skeptical. Verse 5 adds that they do not believe in him. They are essentially challenging Jesus to prove himself to be true because they doubt. We again see the power of unbelief. Surely those who had lived with Jesus and knew him the longest would be able to understand who he was and what he had come to do. Jesus lived without sin. They didn't. Would he not have stood out from other children? Would they not have heard the stories from their parents of Jesus' miraculous conception and birth? We don't know this for sure, but from a human perspective, it would seem if anyone was going to believe Jesus, it would be the members of his own family. But that is the power of unbelief. As Jesus has emphasized over and over again, no one can come to him apart from supernatural work. Now again, this is not to say that none of Jesus' brothers will ever come to him. Think again of James and Jude. But for now, this is not the case. And so Jesus answers them beginning in verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. See, his brothers, they can safely go to this feast because they're not going to find any opposition. They're not going to find any resistance. They have nothing to fear there. They belong to the world, 
And so they face no hostility from the world. But Jesus is different. Jesus is in opposition to the world. And so he constantly faces its pushback. This is what he says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus was the light that broke into the world's darkness. He opposed the works and ways of the world. He himself was perfect and without sin, and he had no problem with confronting the sins of the world. Particularly, he confronted the sin and corruption of those who were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people and overseers of his worship, but had abandoned their calling in favor of legalism and man-made traditions and of politicking. And Jesus cannot go to the feast yet because he knows all things, and he knows that if he went at this time with his brothers, it would result in his death. But he still has work to do, so he is keeping himself from that. Because he is divine, because he is God, he is sovereign even over the evil acts that man might do to him. And so he instructs his brothers to go on to the feast without him. Now, when we hear Jesus say that he meets resistance in the world because the world's works are evil, this is instructive to us. As we bear witness to Christ in the world, which necessarily means that we testify to the evil of the world's works, we should fully expect to be resisted and be rejected just as Christ was. If we are being faithful to Christ and to his word, We may lose fans, if we have any. We may lose friends, and we may even lose family. You could think of all the examples we hear in this day of prominent Christian figures who, uh, they have family members who choose a homosexual or transgender identity, or these people themselves choose such a thing. And then suddenly demand full acceptance and celebration from all other friends and family. And they will shun and reject any who will not. But this is part of the sinful works of the world. This is not something that as Christians we can tolerate. And yet many Christians over and over again in our day are compromising exactly at this point. A family member or a close friend embraces one of the pervasive sins of our day, and suddenly people come up with all these new and novel ways to explain away what God has plainly taught. Now, it may not be that issue, but maybe for some other reason, your family does not like that you are a Christian, does not like that you stand on the truth of God's word. Well, brothers and sisters, if that is you, you are in good company with your Lord and Savior who has gone through similar things. Faithfulness to Christ is costly. It may become more and more costly as time goes on. But what then are we to do? How then should we think about this? Well, we saw the answer earlier in our passage. It was what Peter said. When the world hates us, when it opposes us, when 
friends and family leave and abandon us because of our faith, when we face trials and persecutions for the cause of truth, we must hold fast to these words. They should be our prayer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Whatever the world is offering, it does not have the the words of eternal life. Whatever our unbelieving fans or friends or family might offer us or give us, whatever pressure they might put on us to get us to forsake Christ, they can't save us. We must hold fast to this eternal perspective. We must make the good confession as Peter did. Because if we lose this perspective, we are vulnerable to being fair weather fans or unfaithful friends and not followers of Jesus. And so may we all hold fast to our confession and proclaim it in the world, even in the face of opposition. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his words of life that he and he alone has. I pray that you would write those words on our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would confirm us and strengthen us in them, and that we would rest on them alone for salvation. And I pray that we would be faithful to take these words of life to a lost and dying world, and that we would be steadfast even in the face of resistance and persecution that may come, and that we would never lose sight of this eternal perspective knowing that whatever we face in this world, our end is eternal life with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.